Last week, we took a look at the beginning of the book of Ruth. We opened with those words, in the days when the judges ruled. And we learned about how that was a statement not just chronologically important, but theologically important, because it showed us that the time was a time of great unfaithfulness among the people of God, that it was rampant, it was widespread. There was no king in Israel, we were told, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So from that wide-angle view, if you will, this week we now zoom in more closely to a more narrow picture, looking not so much at all of the people of God, but looking specifically at one family, one household, a household that is, in a sense, emblematic of all the people of God in a couple ways. And one, that they, like the rest of Israel, fail to respond rightly to the grace of God. And secondly, emblematic, because God is faithful to them nonetheless. Please follow along now as I read from Ruth 1, the first five verses, and remember that this is indeed the inspired word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that's in it. It seems to us when we open the book of Ruth and read these first five verses, that it is a dark message. It seems to be a a tragic situation. It seems that things are, are spinning out of control in this story oh so rapidly. And yet we know that you are in control of all things. You are in control of the story of Naomi and Ruth. And you are in control of things here today. You've brought us here to hear this word on this occasion at this point in our life. And so we pray that you would open our ears that indeed we would hear it, that you would open our eyes that we might see you, that you would give us hearts of flesh that might be receptive to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see in these five verses that we just looked at, five terse verses, a real real quick summation of a whole lot of things, right? 
We, we've seen in these five verses uh, a lot happening. We've seen the introduction of a, of a time period that, like we said last week, was a, a bad time period. We've seen the introduction of a main person in Elimelech. We've been introduced to his wife. We've found out that they had two sons. We found out that there was a famine in the land and that they left the land. We found out that they ended up losing Elimelech, that the two sons took wives, that they lived there for 10 more years, that the sons died as well, and that Naomi was left without her husband and without her two sons. That's a lot to happen in just five verses. And yet that is what we're covering today. The reason I think that the author goes so quickly through all of these circumstances is the author doesn't want us to focus so much on on the exact events that got Naomi in particular and the other people with her into these circumstances Because that's not quite so important to us, ultimately, as what God will do in her life and how he is faithful even when we are in those circumstances. Because each of us get into the circumstances that we're in currently by different roads, don't we? We each follow a different road to those places. And yet, there is much similarity between the places that we end up being and in this story here. In this specific story, we see that there is a famine in the land. I looked in the dictionary just to kind of see what, you know, what's the general definition of famine. Uh, And I think we kind of understand that that generally the meaning of the word famine is an extreme or general scarcity of food. And, And that did not surprise me at all when I saw that. But there's a secondary definition as well. And it said that a famine can also be an extreme or general scarcity or an acute shortage of anything. You know, the word can be used in that way as well. And I think that we see here that in this case, there is kind of a layered meaning. We have a a physical thing occurring that is pointing to some other deeper truths. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine. It's a physical famine of food. They, they, they don't have the food they need. But it points to some other famines as well. It points specifically to a famine of faith that existed. And we see that reinforced through a famine of family. Let's look at each of these three points briefly. A famine of food. This is a very real problem that they faced. It's hard for us to really understand this concept in our current culture, in the way we live lives. Uh, you know, I, if I skip a meal, I get kind of cranky, and, and you know, I get pangs in my stomach, and boy, this is really uncomfortable. I don't like this. We're not just talking about missing a meal here. This is a, a famine where there, there wasn't food to eat. You know, it's, it's not quite as bad here because... You guys being native Michiganders, many of you are, are used to the snow and ice and your hearty souls. Back in Missouri, where I'm from, if the weather report said that there was going to be half an inch of snow, there will be a traffic jam on the way to the store 
to buy up all the bread and the milk. So, you know, because, you know, it's going to be a terrible occurrence with this half inch of snow. It's going to keep us from being able to get food. So we need to reinforce our supplies. Uh, you know, here it's not quite as bad as that. But there's a sense of that, isn't there, when a big storm's coming, that, you know, we better hurry and get some things and make sure that we have those because we might not, for a couple days, be able to get the things we need. This is a much deeper need than that. There, there was no food to be had. It wasn't a matter of there not being enough today, so you had to wait till tomorrow. It wasn't the fact that they were out of everything you needed at the store you went to, so you had to go to the other store down the street. Now, this is an agrarian culture, and food was not growing. So there was no food to be had. And you see this, this was happening in a place that was supposed to be providing this food because God had made a covenantal promise to the people of God that he would give them a land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a, a land that was rich in food. And yet we find here that there was no food. It's a problem that flow of milk and honey has dried up. And why? Well, remember what we said last week of Judges. There was this cycle where the people would turn away from God and God would send judgment. Because the thing we need to remember with any covenant, there, there are stipulations to the covenant and and. In line with that, as long as those stipulations are met, there are blessings that are poured out in line with the covenant. But if those stipulations are not met, then there are curses just as truly that are poured out. And so it is that the covenant curses were such <clears throat> that God said he would withhold the rain, that their land would not produce the food that it normally produced. And that would be his judgment against them. And they would know that. It's interesting, you know, I, especially around uh, um, patriotic type days and, and, and such, you'll, you'll oftentimes see people refer to Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. It reads, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And the, the emphasis that people are making usually when they say this is, you know, well, we as Americans need to repent of our ways and, and seek God's face and pray. And, and if we do that, he'll heal, heal America. He'll heal our land. And, and I think we're kind of missing the point there if that's the tack we take with this. Because verse 14 there needs to be read in context, right? And so it needs to be understood to have followed verse 13. So let's just back up half, half a step here to verse 13. In verse 13, God says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. When I do those things, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, dot, 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 I will heal their land. You see what, what God's saying is when I send covenantal judgment 
covenantal curses against the people of God, for they have been unfaithful in keeping the stipulations. When I do that, if they repent of their sin, I will heal their land. That land that I have cursed, that land that is no longer producing physical food for them. I have cursed it as a sign of my judgment against them. And if they will turn from their sin, repent of that, seek my face, then I will send rain once more to water the earth. It will produce crops for their sustenance. And they, as the people of God, will be able to live bountiful lives once again. It's hard for us to imagine this kind of life. We don't generally live in an agrarian culture, even if we do farm land, some of us. Uh, might have a garden. Some of us might have a little bit more than a garden. But, but none of us live in a purely agrarian society. But that was the situation there. Their food was gone. And even in Bethlehem, which is ironic, because the word Bethlehem itself is made up of two Hebrew words. Bet, which means house, and lachem, which means bread. The city of Bethlehem literally was the house of bread. And we find here that Elimelech and his family lived in the house of bread, and yet there was no bread to be had. And so they left. They left because God had sent this famine. And sometimes we want to let God off the hook when bad things happen. When, when things that we don't like happen, when there's a tragedy, when there's a famine, uh, natural tragedies, when, when there's a tornado, when there's a hurricane, when, when horrible things happen. Sometimes we want to let God off the hook and say, you know, boy, God, God surely didn't have a hand in that at all. And yet, if we look at God's word, we see that he, do, he does he does have a hand, even in the worst of things. Now, we don't understand exactly how that works. We don't understand how all those things work together. But we do see that, for instance, with famines, if we look in Psalm 105, it talks about how the people of Israel were sent to Egypt and, and ended up being exiled. And that all happened because there was a famine in the land that God had sent. He had sent a famine, but he had sent Joseph ahead. And... And so we see that a famine, which is a terrible thing, is something that God not only uses for his purposes, he not only reacts to it, but actually plans it. Because he has larger plans in mind than we do. He sees bigger things than we do. Things we can't see, God is at work in. And so was the case with Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth. For he was working here in the context of this book of Judges, the sin of the people having brought God's judgment. And we see there in Elimelech a famine of faith. It mirrors that of the people of Israel as a whole. And I, I say that there was a famine of faith because just like there was a famine of food on the national level and, and it could be seen on a local level, so too was this famine of faith on the national level and could be seen on the local level as well. We always want to contextualize things. I, I 
while I was in college, studied broadcast journalism and worked at a TV station doing news at the time. And, and what they always taught us, what they always encouraged us is you always wanted to find the local angle. You wanted to contextualize things locally. If there was uh, a call-up of, of reserves sent off to go fight in a war, we wanted to go to, go to the local, the nearest place where they were being sent off from the local uh, camp where they were being sent out of, and we wanted to interview people there so we could get the local aspect of it. We wanted to see that because it's more personal to us. And so that's kind of what we're doing with this picture here. We looked at judges, and, and it was a big picture of this famine of faith, but now we, we localize it down to a single person and his family. And with Elimelech, we are left to wonder, well, why does God, in giving us his word, focus specifically on Elimelech? Is it because he was actually better than everybody else? No. Well, is it because he was much worse than everybody else? No. I think it was because he is so ordinary. And God delights to routinely work through ordinary people. And what a blessing that is. Because if you are like me, and really fairly ordinary, you can still be used by God in mighty ways. And that's what happens in this and what we'll see in the days and the weeks and, and the next couple months to come, that there is a mighty way in which God is working through an ordinary sinner like Elimelech and like Naomi. It's interesting, Elimelech, his very name means my God is king, and yet we will see here that God was not king in his heart. Much as there was no king in Israel, there was no king in Elimelech's heart, it seems, because we look, first of all, at the names of his sons. That kind of gives us a marker. Uh, his sons were named Malon and Kilion. These are not Hebrew names. They're Canaanite names. You see, the Canaanites were the ones who indwelt the land that were supposed to be driven out, that the people of Israel were not supposed to intermingle with. And yet, we see that the very names that he gave his sons are influenced by the Canaanite culture. The names you give your children is a very important thing. That's not something you do haphazardly. When we named our children, we thought long and hard about it. We named, we named my son after my father. We named my daughter after my wife's, wife's mother because they were important people to us and because we wanted to honor them and because a name is an important thing. And so when the time came for Elimelech to name his sons, he chose Canaanite names. It's so easy for us to become influenced by the culture around us. It's a very real danger that we all face and we must be careful we must guard ourselves against it. That is why we constantly need to be turning back to the scriptures, why we daily need to be opening the pages of scripture and being fed by God's word, why we constantly need to be writing his word on our heart, why we need to be in prayer, why we need to fellowship with other believers, why we need to be here not just on a Sunday morning, but, but cultivating relationships amongst the body of Christ so that we might be steeled against the influences of the culture as a whole, and that we might instead be faithful as the people of God. 
And we see, too, the lack of faithfulness in Elimelech and the way he responds to God's judgment in the famine. <clears throat> what should his response have been? Well, it should have been to cry out to God in repentance. To cry out to God in repentance for his own sin and to cry out to God on behalf of his people. For they had sinned. They had failed. We too need to own up to our own failings. We're far too slow to admit where we have erred. We of all people as Christians should be the first, the most willing to own up to our failings. For whereas other people go about life believing that their worth and their value is dependent upon their actions, we know that our value, our worth has already been established by the God who died for our sins. Christ Jesus on Calvary's cross already demonstrated his love for us. And even in light of every sin we had ever committed or ever would commit, you, Christian, are loved by the God of the universe. Loved so dearly that he would send his only son to die for you. And so you need not hide your sin from him and you need not hide your sin from others. Let us share our sin with God that we might repent of our sin, that we might turn away from it, that we might be strengthened and be forgiven. Let that be our standard course of action. But what Elimelech did instead was he fled to Moab. Now Moab is a mountainous region on the east side of the Dead Sea. There's a fertile plateau area and it, from a purely logical point of view, it seems like that would have been a good place to go. Uh, surely there would be food there. There was no food in Bethlehem. But you see, the choice between living in Bethlehem and living in Moab was not a morally neutral choice. It's not like should I go to Grand Rapids or should I go to Kalamazoo? I don't know. Just pick your place, whichever you like more. It was not a choice like that. You see, Moab was very much not Bethlehem. Bethlehem, like I said, was the, the house of bread. It was part of the promised land where God had delivered his people and sent them there. It was the place where he was supposed to provide for their needs. But instead of trusting in the loving provision of God, Elimelech tried to choose what would be right in his own eyes. And he goes to Moab. Moab is a place with all sorts of strikes against it. Moab's very origin lies in the story told to us in Genesis 19 of Lot and his daughters who seduced him and the, the fruits of that union was Moab. It's a horrible start. This incestuous beginning. And in Numbers 25, we find that the nation of Moab seduced Israel into worshiping false gods. And in Judges 3, we read how for 18 years, Moab oppressed Israel under the rule of Eglon, we read in the Bible that no Moabite was allowed to enter into the assembly of the people of God. 
And God said that there was to be no intermingling, certainly no marriage between them. Now, it wasn't just a matter of not liking multi-ethnic marriage and, and such. That's certainly not the problem. God actually affirms that. It is actually a picture of the way the gospel breaks down barriers between people and is a good thing because of that. But, but what he specifically is speaking against is not a racial difference that must not be crossed. It is a religious one. He is saying that these people, these godless Moabites, who, who are worshiping idols, worshiping, worshiping their god, Chemosh was the name of the god they worshiped. And, and they believe that this false god actually demanded all sorts of atrocities, temple prostitution and the sacrifice of children and all sorts of other abominations. This was the God that they worshipped. And yet, this is the people to whom Elimelech would flee. It's ironic because when the people of Israel were exiled, they came out, or when they were in Egypt, they came out of Egypt in the Exodus And we read in Numbers 22 that Moab opposed Israel. And when Deuteronomy recounts that story, this is what we read. God says to the people of Israel, because they did not meet you, that is because Moab as a nation, the people of Moab, did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. You should be separate from them. Specifically because they did not meet them with bread and water. This is a place that that historically has not provided bread for the people of God. And yet this is the place to which Elimelech turns. It is not wise to leave the promised land. And they went there, we're told in verse 1, to sojourn. That means they they went there, they were going to be there for a while, get their fill and leave. And come back. But in verse 1, they went there to sojourn. In verse 2, we see they remained there. They felt more at home, one commentator said, in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. This is not a decision that they made overnight. It's a thousand little decisions along the way. And that's how it is for each of us. None of us wakes up one morning and just decides to be uh, a mass murderer. But that person who ends up a mass murderer made a thousand little decisions along the way. And without even realizing it, that's where they ended up. We can do the same. We are very capable of that apart from the grace of God. Let us make wise decisions. Let us remain with God in his covenantal care Let us be faithful. Let us follow his word. Let us not, like they did in verse 4, take Moabite wives. We look at this, we see when, when you've got nothing else, at least you have family, right? Well, we see here a famine of family also. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died in verse 3 left her with her two sons. This is among the deepest of pains we could possibly imagine, isn't it? Some of us here don't have to imagine. We've lost a spouse. That's a a terrible thing. 
It's a terrible pain that you bear. It's a hard thing to lose a person who's been a partner for all those years, a person with whom you have shared life. That is what Naomi experienced. It's a pain that perhaps is only exceeded by the pain she would experience two verses later. In verse 5, when both Malon and Kilion died, and she was left without her two sons and her husband. This is a terrible situation in this culture. It's Just from a practical standpoint, she has no provider. She has no protector. It's a male-dominated society at this time. She is in grave danger. But that danger isn't what bothers her. That danger isn't what worries her at this point, I'm sure. It is the fact that she has lost her loved ones. And we see it even in the wording here. In verse 3, it talked about how she was left with her two sons. And in Hebrew, we see something that we miss in the English translation here. She was left with her two sons, we see. And they use the normal word for sons. In Hebrew, ben is the word. But in verse 5, the word that refers to her sons is a different word. It's a word, yeled. And, and it carries the idea, the connotation, not of just sons, but of her little boys. That's really what it says. It says in verse 5, she was left without her little boys. Without her baby boys. Now they were adults. They had been married for many years. But they were still her baby boys. And so she knew a great pain. She was left with no fruit of her own womb, a barrenness that was prefigured by the barrenness of the land and the barrenness of her own womb also pointed to the barrenness now of her daughters-in-law. She was left without family, left without any descendants, her family name destined to disappear into the pages of history. She was troubled. She was pained. She was grieved. Nowhere does God promise that we will not experience pain. In fact, he tells us that we will. We see in this example that we will experience pain. We will experience grief. And even when we do experience it, God doesn't promise that it will be a quick release from it. You know, in Naomi's case, we can turn a couple pages here and everything's all better. But those pages represent years. And we forget that sometimes. Some of us have experienced years of pain. Years of sorrow. And if you are one of those people, then I have the same word for you that I would have for Naomi. That is, even when all seems to be at its darkest, know that this is true. God provides. God provides what we need. God, he who gives food to all flesh, he from whom every good and perfect gift comes. And the most good and perfect of those gifts is, of course, his son who died for our sins, Christ Jesus, our Lord. For it is Jesus who truly provides for a famine of food. 
He is the one who gives us food. He teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. And he, as we read before together, said it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread. And I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And it was Jesus who sat down with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and proclaimed to them, taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and giving it to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body. For Christ's body was broken for us that our sins might be forgiven if only we turn to him in faith. If only we trust in his payment for our sin, then we indeed will be forgiven. And that faith is something that Jesus gives just as he provides for a famine of food. He also provides for a famine of faith. For faith is a gift from him and is not something that we do on our own. It's not something that we drum up from within. But it is a gift from God. You've been saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. One commentator puts it this way. I love this. He said, God's grace transcends our rebellion and not only leaves the door open for us to retrace our steps, but stirs our hearts to see our folly and the welcoming arms that await our return. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful picture that God loves us so That he not only stirs our hearts to return, but he stands there with his arms open waiting for us. And so it is that Jesus gives us food. Jesus gives us faith. Jesus also gives us family. For it is by his work, by his death on the cross, that he has not only saved us from our sins, but he has brought us into his father's family as sons like him. He says, I am not ashamed to call them brothers. What a wonderful thing. And he teaches us, therefore, to pray our Father. That's a radical thing. I think we just kind of take that for granted. God is the Father of everyone. But no, in a very special and unique way, he is the Father of those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. He is truly a Father to them. And if you on this day trust in Christ Jesus, then you can say that God is indeed your father. And like the prodigal son who has wandered off in sin to a far off land, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you have wandered away instead of just experiencing the faithfulness of your father. He stands there looking for you. He stands there stirring in your heart, calling you back. And as you turn back in repentance, he stands there, arms open, ready to welcome you back. But not only to welcome you back, he wants to put on you the finest robe, the robe of Christ's righteousness, wherein your sin will be seen no more. And he wants to invite you into a feast to gather around the table, to share in a family 
meal. Be reminded that even in the darkest of times, he will abide with us and we with him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness in all situations, even when all seems against us, we have too narrow a view. For your plans are perfect and you work all things out for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. So whatever troubles we might face, whatever difficulties we might experience, whether they are directly related to something we have done, whether we have caused them or whether someone else has done them to us, Lord. Let us have the same reaction. Let it be to flee to your loving arms, to receive your love, to receive your grace, and to abide with you forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.